0: I can seem to say goodbye. Welcome back to another episode of the Prime Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Holderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the firefighter wellness program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to nickholderbaum.com slash UFF to get started. Luke Burgess is the author of Wanting: The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life, He's led multiple companies and is currently entrepreneur in residence and director of programs at the Sioka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship at the Catholic University of America. He's also the founder and director of Fourth Wall Ventures, an incubator for people and companies that contribute to the formation of a healthy human ecology. Luke, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Nick, thanks so much for having me on.
0: When you first learned about Gerard's work and mimetic theory, did you have any self defense mechanisms in place against his ideas? Oh,
1: for sure. I find it rare that anybody doesn't. And if they say they didn't, uh, they're probably lying. You know, for me, uh, especially at that time in my life, in my late 20s, I you know, was an entrepreneur, a CEO, uh, and sort of thought of myself as more independent than I really was. So the idea that imitation drives such a large degree of human behavior, including my own. Was relatively unpalatable to me uh, the first time that that I read it, and it was kind of like, oh, this has to apply to everybody else except me. Uh, and it took me a, a long time to kind of work out the way that it, that it manifested in my own life. So yeah, I, my first reaction was to be a little bit dismissive, and I, I find it's true. A lot of people with Gerard, they're either they say one of two things. They're like, well, this can't be true. Or, oh yeah, that's that's too obvious and therefore it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and the truth is actually somewhere in the middle.
0: When did you realize that you needed to take a look at the navigation system behind your own ambitions?
1: I mean, that was when I had started three companies in the span of five and a half years in my in my 20s, my early to mid 20s. And I would start one and be super about it and then kind of lose interest I mean, it could just be that I had started the wrong companies. That I, I just like you know didn't know, um, you know, was betting on the wrong things, things that I wasn't really passionate about. That's kind of the easy answer. The truth was, I knew that there was something more going on. I knew that there were, there had been something driving me to want to get into certain schools. Uh, I wanted to transfer into NYU so bad I started out at a different university and I did, and which had been driving me to get a job on wall street and then to become an entrepreneur. And I couldn't put my finger on what it was. So after the third company, um, had a, a bit of a blow up, uh, it was kind of a gift to me, you know, it was, it was, a gift in the sense that it was like, you know, the universe or God telling me, okay, Luke, you just need to take a step back and take stock of where you're at you know, call it a quarter life crisis is probably that. And I realized I needed to figure out, you know, what was this navigation system that had been driving me my whole life, uh, that I couldn't put my finger on and this eventually led me to Gerard and the medic desire was, was very explanatory and helping me figure some of that stuff out.
0: When you walked away from one of the companies you founded in Silicon Valley, you experienced intense relief. Were there certain goals that you were striving for that you realized you didn't really care about?
1: Yeah, I mean, the most obvious one was I had become completely fascinated, infatuated, obsessed with Zappos, which uh, was a very successful company. They just surpassed a billion dollars in sales. It was led by the, the late uh, Tony Shea. Uh, it was getting a ton of press. Like anytime anybody went to Las Vegas, where they were headquartered and where, where I lived as well. Uh, Kanye West, Serena Williams, like everybody would get a tour of the Zappos headquarters. And it was lauded as having this amazing company culture. And I was right down the block from them. And I got to be very good friends with Tony and with a lot of people that were there. And I found myself trying to model my company after theirs, uh, sort of in an unreflective way. And, you know, the funny thing is, is like, we could have never been Zappos. I mean, it was a totally different company, totally different people and mission, yet, I sort of adopted that culture as my as a model, and I sought some of the accolades that they sought. I wanted to be named one of the top 100 best companies to work for, and uh, I even started implementing some very specific kind of like weird HR policies that they have. I started conducting my interviews the way that they did, and when that so then we ended up talking about merging or Zappos acquiring my company, and the deal basically fell through. And I realized when it fell through um, that I had been, you know, I had adopted them as a model and it had been, it, it, it caused me to forget the company that I wanted to start in the first place. Like everything that I did, I was measuring myself according to Tony and according to Zappos. I think the intense relief that I felt was it was a... It was a freedom from that kind of mimetic striving that I was deeply, deeply engaged in and I didn't realize it. So it, it sort of took, and so, you know, life kind of sometimes work like works like this, right? Like sometimes it takes a, a disillusioning thing or a tragedy, something that kind of brings you to your knees or wakes you up in order to, to change and to realize what, you know, what the hell you were doing. And that was it for me. So, I mean, the, the freedom and the relief that I experienced was Look, you, you'll never—you're never going to be satisfied, Luke. If you—if you consistently adopt other companies, other entrepreneurs, other ideals of what entrepreneurship is as your own, it's just a never-ending game because you'll always find another one. That
0: top 100 companies list was sort of like your Michelin star. <laughs> yeah, that's a good—that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, I—I I, I describe um, a chef in the book
1: who you know was in in France. If you're a chef. The Michelin star system is everything, you know, from the time you're old enough to talk, you you learn that Michelin starred restaurants are, 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 you know, the best. And if you're a chef, you want Michelin stars. And I tell the story of a chef in France who, you know, got the three Michelin stars, which is the highest accolade that a, that a chef can receive anywhere in the world. And he, he had them for 17 years and it eventually made him so miserable trying to keep those stars that he you know, told Michelin that he wanted out of the system. So I tell that story in the book. So uh, when you say, yeah, the, you know, the top 100 best companies to work for was a version of my own Michelin stars. And there were other ones too, right? Like, you know, top 25 entrepreneurs under 25, or even aside from the public stuff, I mean, just the, you know, like in social circles, you know, you want to be known as an innovator, you want to be known as certain things. And like that, that can eventually I mean, if it if it controls you, it just leads to absolute misery. So yes, I, I would say that's a very good analogy.
0: So why can't we understand ourselves until we understand our desires?
1: Desire is the, is the fundamental core of human life. You know, from the minute that we're born, you know, we're, we're we cry and we want food and water and we want our mom. And a lot of that is instinctually driven. Uh, but as soon as we begin to develop Uh, we begin to want all kinds of, of abstract things, you know, um, children look at their, their mother's eyes and they see what the mother is looking at and they begin to desire the the things that the mother desires and all throughout our lives. Desire is, is driving us. Uh, I mean, it's, it's literally what, what keeps us going. I mean, a person that loses all desire is depressed and eventually dies. I mean, desire is, is kind of the, you know, the, the energy of life yet. It seems like we hardly ever talk about it at all. And I, I think maybe it's because it's, you know, it's so close to us or, it, you know, it is, it's, it's a mysterious thing. What is desire? You know, this could mean so many different things. So I, I chose to highlight this one aspect of desire, which is that, you know, the nature of desire is mimetic or imitative, according to Rene Girard. And I think it's it's almost, it's like a first principle. It's a first principle in life. If we don't understand our desires, then all of these other things like start with why and uh, all of the business jargon and, and tools and tricks, none of that really matters because you're wanting things like long before you understand why you're wanting them. Uh, we we you know it, desire is like the the engine that we have, and we need to understand how the engine is constructed <laughs> in order to understand like where we can go. So that's why I thought it was so important to just kind of take everything back to why do we want the things that we want.
0: And I imagine it's important to understand the difference between desires and biological needs.
1: Yes, and there's not a strict sort of distinct dividing line between these things, but it is helpful just as a, as a thought experiment to. To just understand that, you know, we do have instincts. You know, we we share that with animals. When an animal is is hungry, it eats. Doesn't really care what it eats usually. Um, and if we're cold, you know, we seek warmth instinctively. Uh, so we we have that built into our into our biology, right? These things have been adapted through evolution. And, and those are real. So, you know, we, we choose objects um, on an instinctual basis, you know, just like animals do. But we also have this other capacity, right? We want all kinds of abstract things from stocks to like ideas of lifestyle, the things that we see in social media. Mm. And with these things, especially as they become more abstract, we don't have instinctual any kind of instinctual basis that helps us decide between one thing and the other. So Girard said that most of human desire is mimetic, maybe all of it, and that's you know the idea that we rely on other people to know to know what is wantable, to know what to want. Uh, that they serve as our signals in this universe of desire, the way that our bodily instinctual responses do for our biological needs. Now there's you know it's not a fine line because now even things that you could say um, are driven you know by biology like water <laughs> are, are also very mimetic because there's like 50 different brands of bottled water to choose from so in a sense this universe of desire that Gerard speaks about the the mimetic realm has infiltrated almost everything from the, the you know the way that we choose
0: brands to uh, the way that we choose partners yeah we turn our biological needs into desires by trying to upgrade them, fancy water or food. We want the juicy steak or we need shelter, but we want the big aesthetically pleasing house and so on.
1: Exactly. So it's, it's added, um, a ton of layers to these biological needs. Um, almost, you know, nobody is kind of satisfied with, with kind of the, the base fulfillment, you know, now it matters like, you know, what, uh, you know, what, what vaccine did you get? Moderna, Pfizer. Like, it's like, even, even that I wonder, right. There's gotta be some emetic stuff going on. Even, even
0: in that world. Why is knowing what to want so much harder than knowing what to need? Knowing what to need. We, we do have, you know, we, we have biological
1: mechanisms for that. Um, there's certain things, um, that, that we know that we need to survive. You know, we, our fight or flight kicks in when we're in danger, uh, that happened for many of us over these last 18 months. You know, we're recording this. You know, at the tail end of a pandemic, um, knowing what to want is so much harder because we look to other people to help understand what is desirable, usually unconsciously. And the problem is, especially today, in a world dominated by social media is that there are billions of different models to, to choose from. It can be confusing. Like who do, who do we pay attention to? Uh, what are the signals in the noise? It's not easy to tell. We all have a little mimetic machine in our pocket, our smartphones, you know, that gives us access to Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. And there are people there, you know, modeling all kinds of different, different desires to us uh, for careers, usually on LinkedIn. Uh, for lifestyles and in the case of Instagram. And it's harder than ever to kind of know uh, you know, what to pay attention to and what to ignore.
0: So social media platforms are built around mimetic desire and helping people see what other people have and want. And the more people are alike, the more likely they are to feel threatened. So will social media bring our desires closer together and amplify conflict?
1: It, it already is, no no doubt about it. So the power of social media from a Girardian perspective, in my view, uh, is not just that it's, you know, neurologically addicting and, you know, gives us dopamine hits. Some of that that is true. You know, the, the, it, it does uh, trigger some Pavlovian responses in us when we've been using it for a while. You know, we like to see that shiny red new message notification on our on our phones and you know, it gives us some pleasure to click it because we don't know what we're going to see. Um, psychology that's, that's considered an intermittent variable reward. It's like why we're, you know, people are addicted to slot machines. Um, but there's a different level and layer to why social media is so powerful. And and that is the, the mimetic layer, the, the, the fact that it fuels mimetic desires. We have this innate need to know what other people want, what other people are doing, uh, and that is mimetic desire. I mean, FOMO is part of it, but it's not just FOMO. It's, it's that we're, we're looking for validation of our desires. There's an interesting thing with humans. Like If we want something that nobody else wants, we start to doubt ourselves and think, well, maybe this thing isn't wantable. So there's this really powerful need that we have to know. And social media provides that unlike anything that we've ever had.
0: In the book you reference when you're when you have a new date or you bring your new date around to your friends and if they don't act interested then you won't like that date as much
1: yeah exactly and you know i've talked to uh, i'm a professor at a university and i, I have I, I teach a lot of freshmen and i've had um i've had a lot of students come to me i, I usually teach one or two classes about mimetic desire uh, each semester it's just an introduction and uh, one of the things that students tell me is you know i'll have like a guy come in my office and say you know, Professor Burgess, like it's true. Like if, if one girl in the friend group, like, like likes me, they all like me. (laughs) But, but if, but if like one of them doesn't, then they all start like seem to to form the same opinion. Like it's crazy how that works. And I'm like, well, you just need to get the one, you know, which, what can you learn from that? (laughs) So yeah, um, that's definitely, definitely true. And in terms of sameness, Gerard's discovery is that we, we tend to We tend to pay more attention to the people that are more like us or that have more in common with us. Uh, So, you know, who are most people more jealous of if you ask them? Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, who has got over $100 billion or uh, the person that works in your industry or in your office that might make five or 10 grand more and, you know, has a slightly bigger house and seems to always have a couple extra days of vacation time. Yeah. It's the neighbor who's just a little bit more successful. It's the neighbor. It's the neighbor. And, you know, everybody says it's the second person, it's the neighbor. And interestingly enough, you know, the 10th commandment in the Bible, the Decalogue, specifically forbids like the envy of the neighbor. Um, And I think that the use of the, of the word neighbor there is really important to pay attention to, right? It's like, it's telling us something about, our, our, our nature, right. And our tendency to be looking to the people that are closest to us and the people that are most similar to us. And one of the things that social media has done is it's, it's in a way it's made us all a little more similar in the sense that, you know, we we all have the same exact like profile specs. And, you know, in the case of Twitter, the same amount of characters to use, and we write something the same way to kind of like show our persona. So there's kind of a crisis of differentiation that happens kind of like on a dating site, right? It's like, I've only got, you know, these, these nine or 10 ways to like, make sure that I'm this, you know, I'm presented as this unique individual. I think social media has really done that, that for all of us in a sense. And, you know, that uh, from Gerard's perspective can trigger kind of a mimetic crisis where um, there's a crisis of sameness, which he says, you know, typically leads to conflict.
0: That's a really important point. Humans imitate because they want to be a certain kind of person, but we also imitate when trying to differentiate ourselves from others. Yeah, and that's a, a subtle
1: point, but I think it's a really important one. And we could, you know, we typically think of imitation as doing what another person does or imitating them in let's say a positive way. Hmm. Uh well, there's a positive correlation between what they do or what they say or what they want and what we want. But the imitation can also come in a, in a negative form, like a negative or mirrored form of imitation. You know, we talk about this in the book. Uh, mirrored imitation is still imitation because it's still taking the other as a model, as a mimetic model. Except rather than do what they do, the person does the opposite of what they do or does something a little bit. A little bit different to always differentiate themselves. It's like you buy a Tesla, I buy a Rivian, which is a competitive uh, electric truck. Um, and and you know people do that all the time to kind of like differentiate themselves, like from the culture. Like in the case of a hipster, right? It's like the culture does this. Well, I'm going to do this. And the funny thing and the interesting thing with that is that it's still it's still imitation, and you basically end up becoming like a mere image. Like a reverse image of the, of the very thing that you think you're trying to separate or differentiate yourself from.
0: What does it mean then to be original? One of the implications of,
1: of this, of mimetic theory, is that nobody's 100% original. You know, we're, we're all, we're all we're social creatures and, you know, our, our self and our, who we are. As, has been constituted in and through the relationships that we've been in throughout our life, starting with our parents and our friends, right? They've been shaped. Uh, so originality you know, is, is never like complete originality. Um, there's, always, there's always this interplay. Um, the beautiful thing though, is that originality or, or innovation, uh, uniqueness, uh, sort of comes out of, of these relationships And, and, you know, this social process that we're in where we, we begin to, uh, we begin to see, to make things our own. It's kind of like a writer who, you know, imitates great writers and eventually ends up, you know, defining their own style. And it's it's usually just happens without them even knowing it. Right. Same thing with athletes, Uh, Kobe Bryant imitated Michael Jordan, and then he kind of developed his own style. Like we associate him with having, you know, it's Kobe style. Uh, and that just happens naturally for, for people
0: in whatever domain that they're in. Gerard said, desire is always for something we feel we lack. So is this solution learning to desire what we already have?
1: Learning to desire what we already have. Yeah, that, that's an, that's a really important point, I think, because we're always looking for something that that is out there and that can cause us to miss the things that are closest to us. I, you know, let's take a marriage. It's a great example of that. Um Yeah, I'm talking to you three weeks before I'm about to be married. And, um, I know that, you know, one, one problem in any relationship is like, you always think there's something else out there, uh, where the, the, the job, the work in a marriage is, is to desire more deeply day after day. Um, your, your, your spouse, um, Not that you have your spouse, um, but that, you know, this is a person that you're in a relationship with um, that's close to you and, you know, focusing more on that than on these kind of abstract um, dreams and things that we have, right? Like it's kind of pulling us back to the concrete the responsibilities that we have, um, you know, to to desire the, the, the things that, you know, our children, our spouse, our work, that's a really important point. Uh, yes, because Gerard does say that one of the traps, one of the negative um, parts of mimetic desire, which by the way, it's, it's not a negative thing. Mimetic desire is a great thing. You know, only humans have this kind of desire and it, it's what makes us open to other people and it's what allows us to grow. It becomes dangerous though, when we're sort of never satisfied and always looking for for new models of desire that we think are always right around the corner. And, and hey, if I just had this, or if I was just with this person, or if I just had this job, I'd be totally happy. That's never the case. Uh, so we, ha- we have to, I, th- I think the, the point that, that you're making, which is in the book, is we have to constantly be come, come back to ourselves and, and
0: look around at the things that are most important. Yeah, one way I do this is sort of like that stoic practice where you uh, imagine negative visualization or you imagine losing what we have like our job or our partner or our health or through a personal gratitude practice to make us reappreciate what we have.
1: I do the same thing and you know that that habit of you know that's a gratitude is a powerful exercise uh, precisely because of that. It's it's a, it's mindfulness, it's cultivating the mindfulness. Uh, you know, we're we're so fickle, you know, and our, our memories are so weak <laughs> um, that it's so easy to forget, you know, and, and calling that to mind every single day is really, really critical.
0: And if thin desires are highly mimetic, fleeting and adopted from other people, where do thick desires come from and why aren't they as contagious as thin desires?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So th- what I call thin desires in the book are the desires that are. Almost entirely mimetic, you know the the desires that are inflamed within me, and are sort of gone tomorrow, or gone next week, maybe gone next year. They they lack real solidity. Um, I think of thin desires like a like a layer of leaves over a big thick. Uh, piece of rock or, or layers of granite. I'm, I'm actually thinking of like Zion National Park, if anybody's been there, some beautiful national park where there's just these rock layers with leaves on top. The thin desires are like the leaves because they can be blown away with just a single gust of wind. So they're mimetic desires that we've never cultivated and, and made our own. We've just adopted them. Uh, we may convince ourselves that they're our own, but but they're not. Uh, And they're they're gone quickly. I mean, so my desires, a lot of the desires that were driving me as a young entrepreneur were thin. Um, They didn't stick. The thick desires are like those layers of rock underneath. They're the ones that we've cultivated over over a lot of time, right? We've we've allowed them to thicken and grow and, and sort of become the core part of who we are. Now it doesn't mean that all thick desires are good. I mean, I I know people that that have cultivated really bad vices and they've cultivated thick desires for, for like things that probably aren't good for them. Um, so let's, I just want to be clear. Um, but, um, Hopefully, we we cultivate you know thick desires for things that you know genuinely lead to to, to human happiness, right? Some like virtues. Um, I'm, I'm sort of a classicist, right? So I, I agree with Aristotle. Like there's there is a way to sort of live the good life, right? To cultivate virtues and 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 knowledge and and, and wisdom, uh, and those those kinds of desires, if they're cultivated long enough, um, you don't lose them. You know, that you, you don't, you don't lose a virtue, for instance, that you've worked for years to, to build um, patience or prudence or whatever, a fortitude, um, just because you, you know, you look at Instagram for a couple of hours, you know, because it's thick, but the, the, the thin ones, they're not rooted in anything. They're not rooted in anything real. And, you know, we, I think learning to tell the difference between the two is a very critical skill of
0: discernment for anybody to learn. This is what Thomas Jefferson meant when he said on matters of style, swim with the current on matters of principle, stand like a rock that it's okay to mimic others on thin desires, but not thick desires. You know, i never heard that from Thomas
1: Jefferson, but I, but I like it. So on style, swim with, on matters of style, swim with the current. Yeah. My, my, my fiance probably wishes I did that a little bit better when it comes to, to fashion. Um, you know, that's, it can also get us into trouble sometimes, you know, like in matter, matters of style. If for instance, let's just say I just copy everybody else and, and, you know, try to write a book. Um, I'm not going to say anything interesting, you know, if I'm just kind of like parodying, like what I've, what I've consumed with my Twitter brain, you know? Um, so we have to be a little bit careful, especially when it comes to like artistic work um, stylistic stuff. Right. So there's, there is something to be said about developing one's own style. Um, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in, uh, in Jefferson's quote. I'm not one to argue with him.
0: And the deathbed perspective help us discover our thick desires by reflecting on what really matters.
1: That's one, one little tactic, uh, you know, is, is the deathbed perspective. I think Steve Jobs, you know, had a commencement speech, forget what college it was at. And he talks about kind of death being life's great change agent. Um, You know, when you see, when you realize that you're going to die, you know, you, you, it changes the way that you make decisions, the way that you evaluate the worth of things and pursuits and when it comes to our desires it's really important to to understand we can do a little exercise with ourselves and there's a lot of rules and tools to discern decisions in life should i take this job should i take that job you know should i move to this city or that city at a level that goes beyond just like objective criteria like well what pay what's more money what's more expensive um there is a level of discernment that is involved that sort of transcends all of the objective criteria, um, especially though, when it comes to desires, like desires, you, know, you can't like lay them out on a table and dissect them. You, you know, they have to be discerned carefully. And one little trick uh, to, in doing that is to just imagine yourself, you know, take 15 minutes, kind of uncomfortable uh, and, you know, put yourself on your deathbed and then look back from there at the decision that you're making or, or the desires that you're kind of holding in your hands. Like, let's say there's two desires. Uh, one is to kind of take this path in life, take this job and the other is to, to go a different direction, right? Maybe it's something radically different, like you know go to Africa and you know become a missionary or something like that. And the other one is a little more traditional. You have to sit with those two desires, sit with one for 10 minutes, sit with the other one for 10 minutes. And on your, on your deathbed, in this imagination exercise, they begin to reveal themselves to you a little bit more clearly than if you just tried to um, sit with them in your present circumstances. So there's something really powerful about extracting ourselves from our daily lives um, and, and to kind of put things into perspective. And the deathbed exercise is a pretty classic way of doing that.
0: It's a very powerful perspective. And even to take it one step further, imagine everyone else is dead and without people around, would you still desire whatever it is you're desiring? Yeah,
1: that's. I mean, that's another layer to
0: it um, that I that I hadn't thought about. I think that's a really a really
1: powerful trick. I, you know, in the book, I tell the story of uh, of the of the fox in Aesop's fable, the fox that, you know, sees some juicy grapes high up on a tree and he can't reach them. So he he tells himself the story that the grapes are sour, uh, and he doesn't know, but he just you know makes up this narrative in his mind, and uh, and then he walks away. One of the interesting things about that fable by Aesop is that the fox was alone. You know, the fox was completely alone. So there were no other models of desire around him to influence what he wanted. So he was, in, in a sense, it was very easy for him to make up that narrative, to make up that story and to walk away. But imagine, imagine there were five, six, seven other foxes there that all wanted those grapes and were climbing the tree and were convinced that, that they were good. Uh, it would not have been so easy for him to, to walk away because now there's models of desire. Now he would have doubted himself. So that's an important po- point in the story that I think a lot of people miss. So, I mean, this goes to, goes to your point. Um, if there were nobody else around us, if there were nobody else, how would that affect our decision making? It's a really important question to ask
0: and then what is disruptive empathy and how can it stop the cycle of conflict that stems from unchecked mimesis so good things are mimetic too and one of the most important takeaways
1: i hope people have from the book and from understanding mimetic desire which can often lead to conflict and tension is that we we are free to put positive cycles of mimetic desire in place that that disrupt rivalry and tension and one of the most disruptive things is empathy. Empathy can completely disrupt uh, a, a negative or toxic relationship. When one person reaches out to the other person in empathy, it, it is disruptive in the sense that it disrupts that negative cycle almost instantly because a person that is listened to, a person that is uh, looked at and understood or loved, they, it, they, they just change their disposition instantly and, and that's mimetic they they begin to imitate the empathy and the listening that you're showing them it just comes very naturally so uh, disruptive empathy i tell the story in the book about a, a, a guy who was uh, you know in a in a i was in a very toxic relationship with he was sort of coming after my my company which was going down in flames for money we were sort of tit for tat he'd be aggressive with me i would be aggressive with him uh, and sort of one up each other. And there was like no end to that game. It would have ended very badly uh, until, you know, one night he sort of broke through that veneer of memetic, um, reciprocal violence, reciprocal aggression by changing the game and was extremely empathic with me, listened, asked questions. And all of a sudden my defense mechanisms just melted away. They were totally gone. And my, my mimetic instinctual response, you know, because we're mimetic creatures was to um, imitate his empathy towards me. And from that moment on uh, everything in that relationship changed. So it totally disrupted a negative cycle and, you know, it can happen in a second, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take long. So I'd encourage, you know, anybody listening, You know, and this can be trivial, right? It can just be in like emails back and forth. You know, when somebody sends you a passive-aggressive email, you want to say something snarky back to them. So, and this happens to everybody every day. And you know, think how can I be the one to initiate a a a different cycle here? Like, there's clearly like a cycle going on. How can I just like override? this negative mechanism by doing something that kind of transcends it, that will open this person up. Now, not
0: everybody responds positively, but more often than not, they do. So we can use disruptive empathy to reduce the possibility of cheap mimetic interactions.
1: Absolutely. We absolutely can. And I've seen that time and time again in in, in my life. So often interactions are transactional. Uh, The way that we communicate with people is, is transactional. Um, You know, Especially over email and social media, uh, and I think you know the 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 world is going to change and benefit when people uh, when people go beyond the the kind of cheap interactions and and risk uh, going other places and, and and having deeper conversations and kind of you know breaking the 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 mimetic kind of cycle. And it's not that it's bad; um, it's just that it can kind of put us into zombie mode. And we're, we're free to, you know, to respond in, in, in various ways. And, you know, I think just realizing that we have that agency to do that, to put, uh, you know, positive conversations, positive dispositions into motion because desire is memetic because people are memetic you know, one, one person can have a ripple effect and change, you know, can change the world. I mean, frankly, not to sound cheesy, but we we can certainly change like our workplace or or the or our family um, simply by modeling a, a different way of behavior.
0: I want to talk about a core desire that is common to every person, which is to know and be known by others. Why is this universal, and what does it take for someone to truly know us at our core? To to know and
1: to be known by others is is just. I mean, this goes back to the heart of classical philosophy to aristotle to to theology um it seems to as as knowing creatures as as rational animals as aristotle would said would say um we want to know we want to know things we want to know the the universe we want to understand and that's also true of people so we don't just want to understand like scientifically how the world works we have a deep desire to, to know and uh, that includes people at their essence. Like we wanna know who people really are. And of course we want the same for ourselves. Um, we want that 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 mode of knowing reflected back to us. And this is an example of, you know, that's something that can be tremendously, positively mimetic when we attempt to know and be known by others. Um, one one way of, of doing this is, you know, we have to listen to each other's stories. Um, because our stories, our, our our stories reveal something about our essence. I mean, think about the difference. If you know, if somebody tells me uh, where they're from, what their favorite food is, and uh, what their favorite sports team is, uh, you know, it's I'm it's the New York Mets, and they live in Brooklyn. Well, there's there's probably ten thousand other people that live in Brooklyn that that share all of those likes, right? It doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't tell me anything unique about that person's essence. It's just a list of traits. One of the ways that we can come to know people is instead of just asking them the, the resume questions, ask them questions and and also to share these things about ourselves about things that are that are unique to them. Now, here's a, like a great question would be like, tell me about a time in your life when you you did something, you undertook some action that brought you this deep sense of joy and fulfillment and meaning and they'll tell you a story and hopefully two or three, those stories begin to reveal something that is unique to just that person. Um, Cause you know, th- this is something from their past, something that clearly brought them this, this sense of satisfaction and joy. So, and, and that's a signal. That's a key that it reveals something uh, about who, th- who they are at a core level and, and their thick desires. It, it cuts through the, the, the kind of superficial things. It cuts through that and probably through a lot of mimesis and allows us to, 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 to drill down into something that I find a lot more meaningful. Like when I know these things about my colleagues or about my students and all of my students have to go through this exercise, by the way, uh, the before and after is, is, is a game changer. You know, like we're just able to have just completely different conversations um, as opposed to, I just look at, you know, the attendance sheet or I look at the resume and I, and I see those things. Um, I'm not able to kind of like really gain <clears throat> gain an insight into the interiority of the person. So for me, um, this is a beautiful exercise. I've been doing it for 10 years and it, it sort of is a way to cut through
0: the thin stuff and, and get to the thick stuff. We need to be more vulnerable, but also we need to ask better questions. That story that you mentioned earlier about the gentleman who you were going back and forth with has really stuck with me because at your barbecue, he didn't just ask, he, it wasn't small talk. He asked those deep penetrating questions.
1: He did. He did. And he really modeled this, this way of interaction for me. It's one of the first times anybody's done that. Man, most people are never asked. I, I think I think we crave to be asked the question. You know when tell me about a time in your life that was deeply fulfilling to you i mean sadly uh, many people are never asked that question in their workplace maybe not even by their own family but like i love telling those stories you know like i my face lights up and i get out of my seat i love it um and he 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 asked those questions this gentleman um around the fire at, at my party um you know deathbed questions like what you know what do you really want? What's meaningful to you? And it, you know, changed the whole character of the night. And, you know, that, that was a moment, one of many moments, uh, that kind of led me down, down a different path. And I've been trying to bring that level of, of, um, of conversation into everything that I do from my workplace to my classes. I mean, there's certainly, uh, there's an importance and something to be said for like, uh, Prudential self-disclosure. You know, I don't expect uh, not every. You know, I don't force anybody right to have those kinds of conversations unless they want to. But at least inviting them and opening the door to them is is a responsibility that I I feel like I have uh, to you know to be able to go through life really getting to know people and opening the door for the kinds of the kinds of knowing that I think people really crave, but seems to be harder and harder to find those experiences and people that are open to the kind of social media dominated world where you've only got, you know, 280 characters or something like that to, to, to reveal something about yourself. I mean, that's, you can only do so much in that form.
0: Should we all make an effort in our lives to surround ourselves with people worth mimicking? I, I absolutely think that that that's an important thing
1: to do. We have to be intentional about the models that we choose. Um, some we don't choose, you know, we don't choose our families. Um, and we, you know, we have to love them anyway. Um, but there, there are people that, uh, we have a lot of choices that we can make in terms of, uh, the models of desire around us. Um, if you want to be in better shape, for instance, it's going to be really hard to do that unless you have somebody around you, close to you that also desires the same thing for themselves. Um, you know, this is, you know, they're, they're powerful. I mean, one of the points of the book and of Gerard's thinking is that we're more affected by what other people want than we typically realize. So
0: building those structures into our life is, is critical. This is what we're doing when we curate our Instagram and Twitter feeds. It's up to us who we want to follow and make sure we're following good models.
1: Yeah. And so social media, it's funny. They, I mean, we, we literally follow people, but we, you know, we've been following people long before social media was ever invented. That's, that's the irony. Social media has just given us, it's kind of just amplified it, made it easier than ever before to follow people. It's interesting that on social media, people often follow people. Not because they like them or because they even desire to be more like them, but sometimes because they hate them, <laughs> you know, like sometimes because they just want to like, they can't wait to see the next like stupid thing that somebody says. I mean, think about how many people follow Trump that, you know, didn't, didn't like them, you know? So it's, um, that, that's the, that's the interesting part. So we have to be intentional about curating that and asking ourselves, like, why am I following this person? Um, you know, hate watching is a thing. Like, why, why do we do that? Um, it seems like our, our models, uh, there are many different ways of being in relationship with a model. There are rivalrous ways. There are ways where the model just like satisfies some, some perverse need in us like Schadenfreude or something where like we, we, we get pleasure in seeing other people do or, or say stupid things. Um, so yes, I mean, I think we, we, we have a choice to make in how we use the platforms, but also in our own lives um and we have to question our motives like what's really driving us um to you know to interact with this person or just to watch them or to you
0: know quote follow them you are the average of the five people you model after well luke i was hoping you could talk about the tradition of the suspended coffee in naples italy and the mimetic power of paying it forward
1: oh beautiful yeah so i lived in italy for a few years and naples is one of my favorite cities in italy it's not for everybody, um, but it's mine. It's very gritty, and the people are just wonderful. Um, there's no saying like you, you, you kind of hope to die in Naples someday. So I, I that's that's on my list because um, it's so beautiful. You know, um, the, the 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 bay, the the people. There's a tradition in the city uh, of going into a coffee shop, and I, to be honest, I don't know where the tradition started, but you go to a one of the many many cafes and order an espresso. And you can say that you want to um, do a cafe suspezo now, which just means a suspended coffee. It means you just pay for one extra coffee and uh, the cafe builds up a bank of suspended coffees. So when somebody comes into the cafe that can't afford a coffee, um, the cafe gives them one out of the bank and they just, they keep a running, a running tab. Uh, I think it's a very beautiful um, tradition and it's, it's taken off through mimetic desire. I don't know how it got started, but everybody does it. Um, Everybody does it. And it probably started from one person who was in a cafe and just decided to do a little good deed and um, probably, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And now it's just a citywide thing. I mean, there's not a single cafe where you can't do that and that's beautiful. Now it's the power of paying it forward and i wonder you know like what little things are we not doing here i live in washington dc i, I went into my my local coffee shop and, and and literally proposed that they do this and they're just like what are you talking about like we we can't we can't do that that'd be a logistical nightmare right like we don't we don't do that here um i talked to starbucks too at the, on the university campus where i live and they're just like forget it we can't do that um so but you know there the, what we should ask ourselves right like What can we do whether if we're a business owner what can we do in our business to kind of make these kind of positive mimetic things
0: possible beautiful all right luke if you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf are you reading anything good right now
1: that is a great question because for the last 18 months i've almost exclusively been reading girardian stuff what do i have on my shelf i have the reckless way of love by dorothy day so Dor- Dorothy Day was a founder of the, of the Catholic worker uh, movement. They've, they serve the homeless and they have, they have houses all over the country. Um, she's very much an entrepreneur. So I, I have her, her notes on the things that she learned from starting that, starting that organization. So that is the
0: first book on my agenda to read. Well, thank you for sharing that. And then if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? The obvious answer for me is Jesus, but
1: I feel like that's a, that's that's too easy. I can't, um, but it, he'd definitely be number one. Other than that, I would say Andy Warhol. I, I find him absolutely fascinating. I sometimes I I wish that I had lived in the '60s and the '70s and just been able to go to like a Warhol party and just like I just think he's fascinating. All of the tensions in his life. That he's a brilliant artist. His social life. There's so many questions I'd like to ask him. I would love to get a drink with him up in his uh, very famous Soho apartment.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for a really great conversation. I'll have links to your book in the show notes below. Where else do you want people to go if they want to connect with you?
1: Uh, check out, um, you can buy the book anywhere you like to buy books. Uh, and then if you go to lukeburgess.com, I write a substack called Anti that I try to publish weekly on. And that contains all kinds of material that that's didn't make it into the book, um, not because it's not relevant, just because I have a word count. Um, so I, I keep that up to date and uh, and try to make connections to current events and things going on in the world.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy, And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.